I'm uh, Sarah. I'm one of the pastors here at Tallgrass at the Well, so thank you for uh, joining us this morning. Some of you uh, got the word ahead of time that we're going to be talking about God's heart for racial justice, and you wanted to hear about it, and some of you were like, oh shoot, I picked the wrong Sunday, Um, because this is a tense topic, and if you've been a part of um, our community, if you showed up once, if you've been here um, a few times, then then you know that we've been in a series called Radical Jesus. And we are together exploring high heat topics that are front and center in our world today and in our church. And we're trying to figure out how as we as Christians engage these topics in a way that shows Jesus's heart of compassion and wisdom. Um, how do we talk to each other about these issues when even inside the church we don't agree? And so I hope this has been meaningful for you. Um, you can, if, if you're, uh, you know, kind of checking in here and there or you're watching online and you're just not sure, um, you know, you, you want to learn a little bit more maybe about where we stand on some of these issues, you can check out all of the sermons um, under the title Radical Jesus. And we'd, be, we'd love to share this with you and even follow up with you a little bit. So we want to get started here. Each week to set the stage, we are reading a verse together, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. So if you'd read that with me, it says, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God will stand forever. So Racial justice, God's heart, this is one of the most important and yet most sensitive, most divisive topics in our world today. Um, And as we step into this space together, I want you to understand there's an enormous amount of gravitas that I feel um, in bringing this message. And I'll share with you why that is for many reasons. But just even last night as I was wrapping up my message, I sat down on the couch and I just instantly started crying, which I mean, I actually don't like crying very much. I'm not a very, um, that's not like a big part of how I like process things. Uh, I like to be kind of hardcore. And I was like, oh, whoa, I just sat down in front of my computer and just instantly it hit me. And I'm like, okay, I have to pay attention to that. Like, what is this? And I think part of it is like my own um, passion and care for this topic and this work, but also it's just God's heart how deeply he cares about reconciliation and restoration in his body. And so, uh, although race is a social construct, it's one that we've created over time, it's also part of our lived experience. It affects how you feel and, and live in your everyday life, how you identify racially. And so this is a really important uh, part of our lives. It's what it feels like to be you and what it feels like to be me. And so today, my goal is to take something that feels really scary and overwhelming and to make it more relational and more approachable. Because as long as racism dwells in the land of the complex, as long as it is too difficult to, you know, it's, oh, it's so complicated, then we don't approach it because we're like, I don't know how to do this. And so I would like to make it less complex. I would like to make it more approachable. And then when you leave today, you feel like you know a little bit more about what your role is. So the fact that I'm even up here at all today, honestly, is a little bit of a miracle. It's the evidence that we are all on a journey and I'm on a journey. Um, The fact that I'm preaching this message on racial justice is evidence that we can grow and be transformed and we can become better. Because the last time I preached a message on racial justice was December 14th, 2014. I have not preached a message on this topic that I care deeply about 
for almost seven years. And the reason for that is because at that time, I had been become gripped in the year of 2014 with the massive racial justice issues that were happening at the border, that were happening in the Middle East with ISIS, that were happening um, with medical emergencies with Ebola in West Africa, that were happening in Ferguson, that were happening in New York. There was, it was everywhere. And I was a mom of a baby and a toddler and I was gripped with this reality. And so I started to move through my process of awareness and all of a sudden I became a very loud and very judgmental voice around the issue of racism. And the message I preached was so hardcore that people, some people, um, were like, uh, okay. And some, and, and they sat down on our couch. There was a few people that sat down on our couch. And some of them were like, that was a little harsh. And then some of them were like, well, we're not going to be that kind of church, right? That's going to talk about this. And so I just lumped everybody together. People had valid concerns and people who were being, you wanting to hang on to their old paradigms. And I was like, don't let the door hit you. Okay. And that was not the right response. That was ego. That was pride. I just, in case you guys were like, how does she feel about that? Does she feel like that was the right answer? No, that was not the right answer. Um, and so after that, because of what, because of what I did, because of how hard I came out, and again, if you know the Enneagram, you know in Enneagram 8, when they find their thing, their cause, they lock in and they just punch everyone in the face with it. So that's what I did, okay? And after that, Josh and I were both like, why don't you take the racial justice messages? And so ever since that day, Josh has taken those messages and he has done a beautiful job of building bridges. And I'm very thankful for that. And so I'm also thankful that today, our pastoral team has seen me fit to reapproach this because God has worked in me to bring me to a place of humility and taking me on this journey. And so I wanna talk about what that journey has been like a little bit today. And I want you to hear some appropriate self-deprecation, okay? I want you to hear the humility that I've been, it's been beaten into me because that was the kind of lessons that I needed. Um, But I, I I want to make sure that you understand that this is a process, that we are all on this journey, okay? So before we dive into what's wrong with the world, what I want to do is start with the vision of what God wants to see. I think it's really important that we keep God's vision of his heaven and his earth in front of us as we're working on the topic of racial justice. So I just want to uh, you know, say if you're, if you're here and you're not, you don't consider yourself a Christian or you're not sure uh, where you land, this particular topic and the way that I'm approaching this is directed towards Christians because um, <clears throat> the worldview that is a Christian worldview. This, is, this, uh, this whole premise that I'm coming at, uh, at today is really about what is the role of the Christian in bringing God's version of restoration? What does God mean when he says heaven on earth? What does all of that mean? And so this is a uniquely Christian perspective and a uniquely Christian mandate. And so you're welcome to learn. You're welcome to be part of the conversation. We appreciate your perspective. But I just want you to know when I'm, if I'm kind of being a little bit tough on some people um, or if I'm being you know, corrective or if I'm being gentle or whatever, I am specifically talking to Christians, and in a lot of ways, I'm talking to white Christians because that's what I am, and that's the journey that I know. Um, So again, everyone is invited into this conversation, but I just want you to kind of understand where I'm coming from. So what is God's vision for humans, the people that he created? We actually see God's vision throughout the entire text of Scripture. 
And so I just wanna share a few of these things. You're gonna start to see this picture being painted of what God always meant. So let's start off with Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. So they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Do you see how he repeats himself three times? That is important. Um, That's not just like your mom being like, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room. When God repeats himself, he often does it three times, and it's because he wants you to understand that in the image of God, human beings were made. We are uniquely made in the image of God. It's a distinction between the other things that were created, which are beautiful and valuable, but only humans were made in the image of God. And in Genesis 3, the woman that was made was named Eve because she was going to be the mother of all the living, right? So she's the mother of everyone who lived who was made in the image of God, right? So after the fall, God begins to articulate a vision to bless and restore the people of the earth to himself. And he does this starting with a promise that he makes with Abraham. He sees that Abraham has a unique relationship with him and he wants to to make a promise. He says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you all, I will curse. I mean, God's repeating himself a lot here. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All peoples who are made in the image of God will be blessed through you. Throughout the Psalms, we see the psalmist over and over encouraging the people of the earth to praise God, They're saying, let's, let's um, bring forth praise from all nations. Even though they're typically writing to the Hebrew people, they're saying, let praise come forth from all the nations. Jesus is, um, oh, Isaiah 2, I don't want to skip this one. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established. As the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Jesus' final commission to his disciples, again, brings the heart of God for all nations into focus. In Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And finally, in Revelation 7, 9, this is the grand finale because God gets what he was always wanting. John finally gets to see it. It says in Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages seen before the throne, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God's heart has been across the arc of the story of humanity from beginning to end, made in my image and he wants everybody back together. All these people who are all different and unique are all made in the image of God and he wants them all together in heaven before his throne. He wants the big family reunion, okay? So when you picture heaven, are you picturing this? Are you seeing all these people that look different, people from different backgrounds and cultures and languages and skin colors all in front of God together? How are you seeing heaven represented because that's how God sees heaven. And this picture of heaven is the body of Christ that Paul references in Romans 12. 
For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, be willing to associate with people of low position, do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So this is the body of Christ. All of us made in God's image, the future of heaven, interdependent, the body of Christ relying on each other, mourning with those who mourn, caring about those who are hurting, caring about those who are celebrating. This is the responsibility of the body. It's, the body is designed, our physical body and the body of Christ is designed that when a part is in pain or is suffering, that all of the resources of the body move toward that part and say, how can I help? Right? And so when one of us is hurting or oppressed, the body feels that pain. In fact, it's an autoimmune disorder when a part of the body gets rejected from another part, right? Because when a part of the body is hurting and everything else reacts against it, that's what we call an autoimmune disorder. And perhaps in our church today, we have an autoimmune disorder because we have rejected one another and seen one another as different. Part of this is a cultural problem that exists in the United States. And I can only speak to the United States because I, this is where I live. So I want to talk briefly about our history. I know We've talked about the history so many times, but hear me out, okay? Because this is important. In the United States, what has happened, you, we just got done here painting the picture of what God is trying to do, right? It, all in the image of God, one body together, right? And yet that's not how it's been for us here because in the United States, we haven't seen ourselves as one body. We've seen ourselves as separate. And in fact, we even I invented the idea of race it didn't even exist. The, the concept of race didn't exist um, until right around the same time as the slave trade. And it was, it was invented to justify slavery, servitude, and injustice. Specifically, at that time, those of African ancestry, but you can see how that would also influence the trading of American Indians with their displacement, right? So in the Constitution... Our founding fathers who identified themselves as Christian, this is really important, you guys. This is the proof that we, as people individually and we as a country, are on a journey to create a more perfect union, right? Okay, so we're on a journey. The, our founding fathers who identified themselves as Christians wrote that all men are created equal with certain unalienable rights. And in that same document, slaves were referenced by the three-fifths rule. If you are not a free person, then you are considered a three-fifths of a person for the purpose of state representation in government. So all people are created equal if you're free. But if you're not free, and we decided that you're not free because we decided there's a separate race that's meant to be indentured servants to another race, right? Then, then you're only three-fifths of a person. So you can see... They were, they were Christian in a lot of their beliefs, and they were saying, hey, we want people to have freedom of religion, and a lot of really important values that were put into place by our founding fathers. And yet here is this massive injustice that, that pained the heart of God. 
Even after slavery ended as a legal institution, this view persisted. In 1900, Charles Carroll wrote a book with a very gruesome title, which I won't even repeat because it's so horrible. Um, but it attempts to make a pseudoscientific case for race, saying that white people were descendants of Adam and Eve, and, and African descent people, other people who were not white, were descendants of animals. So therefore, we can, we can treat them differently, um, and, and there was, this was a Christian worldview, okay? So, because the, they're using a Christian paradigm of Adam and Eve to say, these people are God's people made in God's image and everyone else is not. And so what that did, that widely held belief at that time influenced not just interpersonal interactions, not just like, well, I get to treat you however I want. This was influencing policies and practices and the way that we built our country. And you guys, this was written in 1900, so it was 121 years ago, okay? So as you can see, even when there was women's suffrage with women working for the right to vote, those were white women. And I celebrate the day that white women were given the right to vote, but black women were not given the right to vote that day because they were not seen as equal, okay? So in this way, even people who claimed Christianity became some of the primary purveyors of the lie of the difference of race, the existence of race as a concept, and the fact that some are better than others, that there's a hierarchy, and that God himself ordained it because he created these races, right? This whole construct came in, and even today as we sit here, this is like, ugh, it feels gross, right? It feels sick. We feel like... Like, getting, like you're getting punched in the stomach with hearing this stuff and the fact that it wasn't even like 200 years ago or even 150 years ago that this was happening, it feels sick to us. And you guys, the fact that we feel that way is progress because this was accepted. This was like, yeah, of course, this is what people thought. Okay, and, and here's, what I, here's what I wanna say. Just think what it might've been like to be someone who wasn't white and to be told that your ancestors weren't, weren't human, weren't equal, and you know that you had native people, you had Asian people, you had Hispanic people, you had black people that loved Jesus and read the Bible and they're trying to figure this out. Because they're like, wait a minute, here are these white Christians telling me that I don't even have the same ancestry. What? Can you imagine what that might have been like? Whoa, we have to wrestle with this, right? So our challenge today is not that there's people out there saying, we're, we're not hearing this anymore, okay? We're not even hearing this in the conspiracy theory-like sections of the internet that, that people are, you know, descendant of animals or things. I mean, we hear like that evolution has happened and, you know, we're all descendants of um, and there's a lot of different theories about this. I am not going there today about whether or not we descended from, you know, apes and chimpanzees and all of that. Not doing that, guys. Sorry, that's a whole nother topic. Um, but, but really, that the belief that, that we're that different, right? We, we have now have DNA. We now know that if you printed out DNA, it, it would take like 262,000 uh, 262, pages to print out like your DNA code, only 500 of those pages would be different between people because we're so 
are, we're humans. We're all the same. There's only a few things that make us different, and that's just that little 500 pages, right? 262,000 pages is like, you know, the same, right? So, so we now know science, and we're like, okay, this little thing that makes us different is actually like your melanin code and a few other things, right? But that's, it's, that's kind of it. So now that we have science, we, we have to like, you know, dispute a lot of that. We have to get rid of a lot of that. But we're still left with the residue of this idea that we are very different than each other. So even though we know we're not, we have the same, you know, origin story and we're all kind of, you can, you know, there's sort of like human origin story about all people starting over in kind of the Fertile Crescent and then um, that word, this like Pangea or something and all the, the the plates break apart and the people groups go all over. I'm not doing that either because that's a whole other uh, scientific thing that I did not research for today and I'm not gonna go there. But the idea is like, we all kind of have this idea, okay, yeah, we, we started here and we've all ended up in different places um, and, and we can make sense of that. But, but we still have this like deeply held belief, I'm really different from you. I'm really, really different from you. And so in the church, for a lot of us who are white, we ask these questions, and I ask these questions as well. I hear, I hear people say this to me all the time, so I'm just gonna like say the questions I hear. Why are we still talking about race? I don't wanna be lumped in with racist people. I'm not racist. Wouldn't it be better if we could focus on something that we have in common? If we have 262,000 pages of DNA that are the same, why don't we focus on that? I don't see color. I think of all the people the same. I have friends who are different ethnicities, so why are people of color still talking about this? Talking about race and, and, and differences is divisive. We need to focus less on race and more on the gospel issues. So I believe that these statements are made by people with good intent who genuinely are like saying, hey, I want to pursue unity here. I do not know what to do, but that's what I want. And those are the questions that I was asking. But we have people of color who are in our churches who are saying, hey, I also want unity. But in order to have unity, we need to have understanding. And I'm having this experience that's really hard and I need to know that you care about it. I need to know that you will listen to where I'm coming from. And even though it's not happening to you, and even though you're not seeing it, will you trust me that this is happening to me? So for those in the body of Christ who are mistreated because of their skin color or their ethnic or cultural background, their racial identity, the race issue is a gospel issue. It is a body of Christ issue. Because when one part is hurting, the rest come to its aid. And in this case, that's not always happening. In his book, How to Fight Racism, author and historian Jamar Tisby points out key reasons why the church is uniquely positioned to be the healing agent for racism in our country. He says, Christianity provides a transcendent narrative for why racial justice is important. We are God's crowning creation, and each person is precious simply because they are human. Christianity has within it the moral and spiritual resources to rebel against racism and white supremacy. Theologian Sung Chan Ra explains Civil rights is often seen in social and political terms. We often fail to recognize this movement as one of the most significant faith-based campaigns in American history. Ida B. Wells, Prothea Hall, Rosa Parks, and many other foot soldiers of racial justice movements have counted on their Christian faith to give them courage to fight racism. So we know that God's vision 
is unity in his body and his family, and that all people are made in the image of God. And we know now that these racist beliefs are at odds with God's vision because they keep us apart. They create an autoimmune disorder in our body and in our country, in the body of Christ and in our country. And the job of the Christian is to bring heaven on earth, and we know that heaven is all tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping God. And so we know that until that reality exists on heaven, we, heaven on earth in that way, that we have a job to do. As Christians, this is our job to bring that reconciliation and restoration. So what is the response of the Christian in this time in history in the U.S.? I want to suggest that the Christian response to racism is first and foremost relational. It is through the one another's that we live out our faith, and this is true in this instance. It's because of the relationships in my life, people who were patient with me to tell me their story again and again and again, people who were patient enough to wait for years. I had friends who I was friends with for over a decade, multiple times, who never told me what it was like to be an Asian American or a black American in our country because I never asked them, so they never told me. These are my good friends, and they never told me. But because of these relationships, people were patient with me, and they gave me the understanding that I have now. And I wanted to encourage us that when we talk about taking an issue that's so complex and making it accessible, part of that is because we're just dealing with people. We're just, it's, it's, it's a relational lens. I want to invite you in this, in this next phase here of this conversation to engage your heart, not just your mind. In Daniel White's book, White Awake, he outlines the stages people move through in becoming aware of the cultural identity of others. And these are not perfectly linear stages. Um, we might find ourselves at like multiple points along this continuum. Um, and so my, I, I just wanna invite you to like say here, this is where I kind of see myself based on some of this. And I'm going to do my best to share my story authentically um, based on, you know, my experience with each of these stages. And again, I don't wanna say like I've arrived, okay? We have the final stage over there is active participation. Um, I don't wanna say like, okay, I've arrived at all, but I just want you to know like I recognize myself in these stages as we were reading this, okay? So the first stage is encounter. And this is just where we, we first meet someone from a different culture and we recognize that there's a difference or we see an active encounter of injustice. So for me, this started really early. Um, my, my parents had a missionary friend who is from India. And uh, so he would stay, he stayed at our house. And that was when I decided when I grow up, I'm gonna go work with kids in India. And that was like, just, you know, since I was five years old, like that's what I'm gonna do when I grow up. Um, we had Indian American friends. And then when I moved to, um, to Kansas from Oregon, my first friend was an Asian American girl. We were both in class together, we were both new. And so we were, we've been like best friends for 27 years. Um, and again, she's one of those people who, until I asked her what it was like to be an Asian American and for a college essay, I never heard her story because I just played together. And it, I just never knew. Um, and it was really eye-opening. So encounter was the stage that I was at for most of my life. And, and I wanna just say, like my mom and dad were all about um, 
justice efforts in a lot of ways. And we always had people of color in our lives who were just like part of our, you know, my workplace, part of my church, part of just my, my life. And we looked for places that were really diverse and that was just a value for me. And so I just thought of myself as like a cautious advocate. But I was like, I'm an advocate for racial justice. Like, I, I really believe that. Like, I have all these friends. I, I really was in diverse places. I really was. Um, and so it was surprising to me, like, what happened to me over the last decade. So the second stage is denial. And this is where we encounter a racial injustice that, like, doesn't fit into our paradigm. And we are like, which we kind of like try to make sense of it and then we sort of make it go away. So this might be someone that you know and respect and they make like an off color or racist joke and you're like, oh, that was kind of gruesome. But I know that person, I know they didn't mean it like that. Um, or you hear maybe somebody who's in, maybe they're a teacher or they're a police officer or somebody that you know and respect, you respect them in their career and they're making a comment about, like a, a racially motivated comment about giving a hard time to an Asian American or a black teenager or something like that. And you're like, that's weird. And you're like, it doesn't fit with the paradigm. And so you move it out of the way. That's the first stage, that did, or the second stage, the denial stage. For me, when Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, I was like, okay, well, the guy that killed him was Hispanic. He wasn't white. So like that doesn't make sense with all this stuff. And then you know, he doesn't have a criminal record, so that's okay. I don't really know what to make sense of that. Uh, but, I, but then I kind of like ended up leaning toward giving George Zimmerman like the benefit of the doubt because there was like nobody around to see this. And I thought, well, you know, he must, it, it was, it, I'm sure it wasn't unprovoked, but at the same time, it was like, why is the citizen carrying a weapon and like enforcing the law? He's not a police officer. I just didn't know what to do with it. And I was wrestling with it. And my friends, who were people of color on social media were unanimously upset. And my white friends were like not saying anything. Or if they were, they were like, I wasn't there, I don't know what to say. It was interesting. It was very like different. It was the beginning of this like seeing the world in these two different ways and talking about it. And that out of that, there was a, um, an activist named Alicia Garza who started using the phrase Black Lives Matter coming out of... Um, Trayvon Martin. And so that, it started to um, emerge there as, as an idea and as a movement. And it's the next iteration from uh, Martin Luther King when he was doing the civil rights movement. Um, he would just say, I'm a man. And that was like a revolutionary idea, right? But, but you can see that Black Lives Matter is like another iteration of I am a man, a continuation of the conversation. So the next stage is disorientation, and this is when you're confronted again with a new perspective, but this time you don't dismiss it, you're just confused. So in 2014, um, I was working at Irwin Army Hospital, and I would go in, in the morning and get my breakfast in the cafeteria, and I would slide my breakfast tray to the end of the little checkout station, and there every morning to greet me was Cynthia. And Cynthia was a black female, and she had this very like relaxed kind of vibe. You know, she would wear like, she, she would, you were supposed to tuck your shirt in. She like really didn't want to do that. Her, you know, her pants would hang low and she just had this very like, you know, don't really care about, you know, how I'm being perceived. And so I would, you know, slide my uh, tray down there <clears throat> and she would tell me these stories about what it was like to be black in Junction City. And I was like, okay, but, you know, I'm thinking to myself, <clears throat> but like, look how you're dressed. Like you don't look 
like you're trying to be an upstanding citizen, like you're wearing a hoodie, you're doing this stuff. This is what I'm thinking. But I'm listening to her and I can see all these people like coming by. I mean, I'll stand there for like 15 minutes and listen to her every day pretty much. And all these people would come through and I could tell some like white people were like, what are you doing? You know, like listening to this conversation. And she was, because she was just telling it like she saw it. Um, and I was sitting there because I didn't, I was like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with this girl because she doesn't fit in all of these, um, you know, stereotypical kinds of, of categories. Um, it, it was just really challenging for me. And so eventually she just kept saying this stuff over and over. And I remember one day, I just remember thinking like, okay, she's either crazy or she's lying or she's having an experience that I'm not having. And I decided that maybe she's having an experience I'm not having. I just, it was like, maybe that's what's going on here. Because I'm, again, I've been surrounded here in the military, in my, my churches. All these places were very multi-ethnic and multicultural. And I was not seeing any of the stuff that she was talking about. So it was really hard uh, for me. But I just said, okay, well, maybe she's having a different experience. And so as that, in 2014, again, I have this baby I have this toddler, and I start, you know, reading about the displacement of all these people in Syria and Ebola in West Africa. I'm reading about Michael Brown um, in Ferguson. I'm reading about Eric Garner in New York. I'm reading about all of these things that are going on, and it's like my heart starts to crack open. And again, as he mentioned, like I like to be hardcore. So I like to be like completely unaffected by things. And this was not okay. I was not okay. And in August of 2014, I wrote a blog called Growing Up Guilty and White in America. And I just talked about what it was like and how I felt. And it was like this confessional. I was like, okay, I'm ready to talk about this. I'm ready to say the ugly thoughts in my head. I'm just gonna put it out here. I don't know what to do with this, but I want you to know that I'm overwhelmed with shame. I feel really, really bad about all the stuff. And I can tell that in some ways I've been complicit or wasn't listening. And I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't know what to do, I'm sorry. And it was just this heaviness. And that was, is the shame state. And a lot of times when we begin to approach that feeling, we're like, I don't wanna feel that way. Again, because it's like, well, I didn't have slaves. I didn't do this. I'm not actively being racist. So like what, I don't wanna, I don't wanna have to approach this. So in that place of shame, it just like, it, it kind of buried me. It was very, very heavy. And so that kind of, as I started to become more aware, in order to protect myself from all the shame, I moved into the next stage, which is self-righteousness. Because now I'm reading the books and I'm following the people on Twitter and I'm starting to, um, you know, there's, there's an old word that used to be the word woke, right? And I was like, okay, that's me now. And I'm like, racism is, is the, you know, this is, a, this is vile, this is sin. And in that's in that state, in that mindset where I was just emerging from shame and I had done nothing to support, you know, to actively really support my friends who are people of color or really do racial justice work. In that state, I was like, okay, God, what should we do? You know, and I remember feeling like God said to me that the church needs to be at the front of this. The church needs to define the narrative around racial justice. It can't just be like up to the secular culture. Felt, that felt very prominent to me. I was like, ah, and I you know, was really anxious, right? I felt shame, I felt self-righteous, and I was like, what do I do? So I held a protest, and I didn't know how to do it, 
and no evangelical churches came. It was like all the hippies from town and um, with the bang, the drums, you know, the bang on the drums. And I was like, okay, let's have a bunch of signs. All lives matter, black lives matter. I don't know, just make all the signs. And I was like, oh, okay, well, this is a, a protest for black lives. So actually that's the sign that we're gonna have for this particular protest. I was like, okay, thanks for telling me. I don't know. I didn't know anything. And then three days later, I came and preached my hellfire and brimstone message on racism. And I was like, repent. Okay, and um, as you can imagine, that didn't go very well, okay? And again, because I was in my self-defensive mode of just coming out of shame, feeling the shame, feeling the self-righteousness, I was trying to prove that I was in. I was trying to prove that I was committed. And let me just tell you that if you're in this stage, there's grace for you, but this is about you. That's your ego, okay? This, you're not really like doing the work yet, okay? If you were in the self-righteous, you know, smashing everybody down, you were just there like three months ago and now you're beating people up, really? You just got here, okay? And as some of my friends would say, take several seats, okay? You need to calm down because you do not know. You just got here. And that was what I needed to do, okay? I had an ego because I was defending myself against my shame. And so this was where God had to put me in time out for a while, and he had to make me more prayerful. I was just, I just had to pray for years. I remember walking around my neighborhood, and I had my phone, and I was like, okay, Lord, you know, I want to see racial and economic justice in Junction City in Manhattan. And I, was, I would just pray the prayer. I was like, I have no idea. I'm a mom. I have a blog. I'm a therapist. I have no idea how I could possibly make a difference. But I just, I'm going to pray and I'm going to be in the background. And that was the work that I needed to do at that time because God, God had to put me in time out. Okay? And we all have our own stories. So the next stage is awakening. And this is the stage where, again, we start to do the real work. It's not, it's not a performance. It's not just like, hey, you know, I want people to think of me as a racial justice advocate, but I'm just going to do it on my own time. This is where we start to kind of make peace with things like, well, I have had struggles in my life. I understand that I've had a lot of pain. I've had things that are hard in my life. I've had, maybe there's, you know, abuse in your story or addiction in your story or death or divorce or other things in your life. But maybe if you're white, the hardships that have happened in your life haven't been the result of your skin color. It doesn't mean you haven't had hardship. It just means that none of those hardships were because of your ethnic or your cultural background, okay? So we're not negating those things. We're just saying it's not because of skin color, okay? So some people have had those things and other harmful things because of their skin color. And so that's another category of pain that we have to listen to right? And so we start to make peace with that. We start to understand our own story. We start to understand our own diversities. And so we start to also see in this stage that diversity isn't like a box you check or a class you go to and you're like, got it. It becomes an asset in, in everything that you're doing because you're like, okay, how do you see this situation? How do you see this situation? How do you see this situation? And it gives you a more full perspective of yourself of, of an organization, of your workplace, of your family, of your city. It's like, oh, and, and you can do more together. In, in, when, you're, when you're investing, you want a diversified portfolio, right? You don't want to just be like, I'm putting all my money in Uber. 
I'm gonna put all my money in CBD, right? I'm gonna put all my money in Tesla, even though everyone's doing that, okay? Um, You need a diversified portfolio because diversity is strength. We know that, but we don't always live like that. So in this stage of awakening, we start to accept that diversity is an asset. And again, we understand our own diversity in this stage. We understand that it's not like me and then everybody else. We, it's just, it becomes this ecosystem that, we, that we're um, interdependent. And finally, in active participation, this is an ongoing stage. We're actively working to create change. And I think that, you know, if I'm thinking about my own story, I'm, I can tell that like I've come through this like multiple times through this whole stage. Um, even this summer, my, the organization that I work for, we had done some outreach um, in one of the ethnic cultural communities. I'm not going to go into too much detail because I, I just, I want to be vague here. But our organization had done some outreach because we were like, okay, there's injustice happening here. We want to, members of this business community to understand that we see them, we value them, we're glad they're here. So we did that. And then a member of that community, we had been like trying to engage, we just didn't know how. We, we realized we don't have relationships, we don't have trust, oh my gosh. And so <clears throat> we did that. And then one of them sent me an email and was like, okay, thank you for doing that because you've done more than you know, anybody else, but also here's why that wasn't helpful or here's why you need to talk about that differently. And I was like, I felt the shame feeling. I wanted to defend myself. I wanted to be like, okay, well, but we tried to like reach out to you and you didn't get back to us and da 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 and, and like, well, I'm doing more than everybody else. Okay, so again, there's, do you hear the self-righteousness? You go through this multiple times. And so then I sent my cross-cultural consultant, she works with us in our organization, I sent her the email and she goes, okay, but this is good because they're talking to you. And they trust you with their heart and this information about how they don't think this is like the right way to do this. And I was like, okay, that's good. And so I was like on vacation reading these emails, going back and forth and I'm talking to Josh and he's like, you're all worked up because you care about this. And I'm like, that's true. And so I can get through these stages faster now because I've I've made peace with the fact that like the big moment for me was as, as white people, we like hate saying the wrong thing. I have so many people in the business community that are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to offend someone. I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So I'm just not going to go there. And one of the big things that switched over for me uh, at some point, I don't know when it was, but I was just like, I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'm going to like put my foot in my mouth. I'm going to say like something racist to my friends on accident. And I'm like, I hate that. Like, I'm terrified of that. But I'm also like, well, what are the options? Like, if I care about this, if I care about unity within the body, if I care about moving towards the place of pain within the body and within our country, within our city, to bring healing and to bring reconciliation, if I care about that, like, this is a part for me. I have to make peace with this. Like my friends, I'm going to offend them. I'm going to hurt their feelings. And I hope to God that they hear my heart and that they like, or still want to be friends with me after I say something stupid. And I'm going to have to make peace with that. And that was like, I tripped over that, you know, know, that, that recognition. Another thing that was helpful for me when I had somebody, you know, coming at me and was like giving me a lot of their feelings about this injustice that had happened, I was like, okay, I was in my self-righteous mode. I wanted to like defend myself. And then all of a sudden this thought came to me and I was like, I have committed to doing this work. 
I have committed to being willing to look stupid, which is like my biggest fear in the world. Clearly, it's not public speaking. <clears throat> and it's not death. I'm afraid to look stupid. I don't want to look stupid. I care about this. I want to look competent. I want to look like the star. And, and yet, here I am, and, and you're going to tell me that I'm doing this wrong, and I'm so scared. So what, I remember like having this thought, like, you can't fight me. I'm on your side. <laughs> like, like, it just meaning, like, I'm, I'm here to learn from you. If you are going to tell me something that I need to do differently, I want to hear you. Like, I don't have anything to defend. My defenses are down because I care about this. I care about you. I want to hear your story. It doesn't mean that I'm going to like push play on every single thing that you're saying we should do. I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. And that might not even be the right thing to do. But I want to hear you and I'm on your side. And so I don't need to fight. I don't need to have my dukes up. I can stay in this place of open-handedness knowing that I've made peace. Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to look dumb. I'm sorry I made a mistake. I hate that. I hope you hear my heart. And that's been really powerful. So here's the thing. Inside of active participation, we can all do this. It is, these are stages, but you guys, we can start doing this now, wherever you are. If you're an employer, you can start thinking about how your hiring system filters out people who might be qualified but are from a different ethnic background. I was talking with someone this, this last week, and she said that um, she learned after she made an application that the people who were hiring her for this particular organization, they set aside all of the applications and the names they couldn't pronounce. They didn't want to like embarrass themselves in a, um, an interview. And it was like, okay, I can say all these names, keep, I can't say these names. And that happens a lot actually. And so, you know, anyone who is a person of color who has a name that isn't a classic, like, you know, Euro-American name is, is not going to get included. That's just a very small thing, right? There might be a few other places where like, I only recruit uh, to hire from places where I know people. And it's like, well, a lot of us have predominantly white circles. And so we have to start thinking outside of those circles. And these are just like moments of like, oh, okay, intentionality. If you're in education, maybe you're paying attention to disparities that might exist for kiddos who are um, people of color in your class. You're making sure that there's equitable treatment and that the kids in the class are being kind to each other and they're not saying, you're not, they're not adopting slurs or that those aren't happening on the playground. Um, we're all consumers, so if you're shopping for a product or service, you're intentionally looking for businesses that are um, run by people of color. Because you're like, oh man, I, I just never thought of that. I never thought to look. Um, the Chamber just released a minority business directory about two months ago, and people are adding to it. The black entrepreneurs of the Flint Hills have a business directory. So if you're like, okay, I, I don't know, I've never thought of this before, and I realize like, I just hire everybody that I know. And it turns out a lot of those, not all everyone, but a lot of them are white. So like, how do I diversify my, you know, who I'm hiring for stuff for, you know, for a product or service? And, and you just, you go to the minority business directory for um, the Manhattan Chamber. Um, and, and you can go to the Black Entrepreneurs of the Flint Hills. That's just something that you can do locally. Um, for me today, because I, I, I just think that God gave me this opportunity after I prayed for a long time, um, you know, I run an organization now that partners with other community leaders of color in organizations that are run by people of color. And um, you know, we have an entrepreneurship center. Entrepreneurship is an incredible way uh, to empower people with um, skills and education and to create wealth and legacy for their families. Um, but also when you have, <clears throat> excuse me, entrepreneurs of color in our communities where they're like kind of 
operating a business that doesn't have a legal structure and you know they're just kind of like selling stuff out of their garage and they don't really know how to form up a, a business formally they're not paying tax revenue um, into you know our local community our, our we don't know about their product or service and so there's a whole bunch of reasons why um, we want to help people formalize their business everybody benefits even from like a bottom line financial perspective we benefit and so um, that's one of the things that now I'm able to do. And this is creating like real-time opportunities for entrepreneurs of color to get that core education, to get more visibility. And there's been an enormous amount of momentum that's happened just in the last 15 months um, since these partnerships have formed. It's really incredible. So um, I want to wrap up here, and, and we only have uh, a couple minutes, but um, <clears throat> I want to just share some of these next steps. So. First off, I, you might have seen where you are or you know, recognized yourself on multiple places on the spectrum. And so again, it's okay wherever you are. There's grace for you to be wherever you are. And again, I'm proof of that. Um, <clears throat> one of the helpful things that you can do is get to know your own diversities, what makes you unique. Because if you don't know what makes you unique and different, you don't know maybe your own cultural background or some of the things of your personality type, you're gonna have trouble appreciating the diversity of others. Um, be curious about what parts of your culture that you've moralized. So maybe like you have parts of your culture where you're like, I think people should dress this way, they should talk this way, um, they should be on time, they should you know do whatever. I know that being on time is like a value beyond culture, but it is a cultural value to some degree. And so sometimes we moralize things, like if someone's dressing like this or talking like this, that's bad. And therefore, mentally, we can like make a note like that's sin, that's wrong. And, and so that's a really important thing. We do not want to moralize just preferences, things that are different, right? It's like, eh. and so mentally you can just be like, oh, well, that's different, like how they're talking, how they're dressing, you know, when they show up for the party. It's okay. It might just be different. It doesn't have to be wrong. So uh, another really important one that made a huge difference for Josh and I was asking a friend who was a person of color, what is it like to be you? And listening and not like making excuses or judgment, just listening to them and letting them tell you the story. And again, this was when we heard stories we just never heard because we never asked. Um, mentioned earlier, intentionally reading, uh, learning from, supporting, people of color, buying from them, looking for how you can support their business, um, give, leaving a good review, you know, making a referral. These are just really simple things that we do anyway. Just, you know, be, be intentional with that. And then the big one that I want to leave us with is just like the, the ongoing evolution that we have as a person is to ask God about our role in restoration. How do I make wrong things right? These things are still wrong. Our country has made enormous progress, enormous progress from where we were in the 1600s, the 1700s, 1800s, but we have a long way to go. And so what is our role now? What is your role now in bringing God's heart for this country, God's heart for the church? What is your role in restoration? So as we close today, we're going to come together again around the beliefs that we share. And those are our, our shared beliefs in the Apostles' Creed. So if you would, stand with me. We're gonna read these words together that unite us, that have brought Christians together for, before race was even a concept. People of faith, the Christian faith, have been 
saying these words that bring us together. And so we're gonna do that. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So we're going to participate together in the Lord's Supper, and we're going to have our worship team coming up. Um, so the Lord's Supper is another act of unity, and there's a reason that we've been doing this together um, during this sermon series that is high heat, because we feel some tension, and we can tell that we don't always agree on you know, maybe you don't agree with like 50, 60, 70% of what I said, and you're like, ah, but we are going to say the Apostles' Creed and come back together because we are a body. And we're gonna take communion together. We're gonna come back together with God and with ourselves and with each other because we are a body. Because that is the thing that matters the most. And we're gonna keep returning to that truth and let it transform us. And so if, as, as um, it says in the Bible, that if we have something against someone, if we need to work something out, I would encourage you to, to pray, to confess that to God, to take a moment to let your conscience be clear and then come forward, receive communion, and, um, and worship with us as we close. I'm going to go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Lord, thank you for your transforming power. Thank you for the blood of Jesus that restores and brings reconciliation. Thank you for this vision of heaven that is people from every cultural background and skin color and tribe and tongue and language and Lord, I'm so excited to see that. This, that is a moving picture for me. And so, Lord, we thank you that you've given us that image, that that's the end of the story. That's where it's going. And so we want to partner with you in bringing that reality. It says, on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, let that be our reality. Let us partner with you in bringing that vision on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded in partnership between Tallgrass Community Church and The Well. For more resources like this, visit tallgrass.church and thewellmhk.com.